Good morning, this is Debbie Gershenowitz from Cambridge University Press doing our weekly Black History Month podcast. And today we have the great honor of having Carrie Lee Merritt. Um, Carrie Lee. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm really glad to be back in New York. It's our pleasure. So Carrie Lee Merritt um, is the author of Poor uh, Masterless Men, Poor Whites and Slavery in the Antebellum South. And um, this, this book, for those of you who are on Twitter and um, basically breathing, Carrie Lee's book, in its own right, is field-breaking and path-breaking um, because it shatters the myth of the lost cause, which was that all Southern whites were united in their support of slavery and of white supremacy. And because of that, that kept them a united front against the North during the Civil War. And we'll talk more about that shortly. But so, so the book itself is pathbreaking. However, um, in publishing, time is everything. And Carrie Lee's book came out in March 2017? May. May of 2017, basically still on the heels of the presidential campaign of 2016, where um, poor whites um, became um, a political force, some perhaps actively, others perhaps um, because the media put them there. but. Basically, the whole question of white people, who they are, how united are they, how do they operate as political, as political bodies, um, has really been in the public eye. And Carrie Lee has, I would say because of this book a little bit, but also because she's just incredibly looped in and sharp <laughs> um, and connects past to present, has, um, I say this, with no sarcasm or and no exaggeration, she is a true public intellectual. Carrie Lee has um, just really become a presence on Twitter. She has had so many threads go viral about this book and beyond this book. So we're going to talk a little bit about the book, why it became a viral sensation, and then um, I want to move somewhat swiftly into the lessons for today, um, because Carrie has been a very active speaker um, about what what class means, you know, how race and class connect in today's political environment. With that in mind, um, the other podcasts, I've been talking a lot about, you know, one steady theme that I've been thinking about a lot for Black History Month is the invisibility of um, historical actors. Um, thus far, we've been talking about black actors. Um, fugitive slaves, captive slaves. Um, but today, we're going to open that lens a little wider and talk more broadly about race. And um, Carrie Lee has followed poor white people who basically, until this book, it was just assumed that they were, you know, supported what slaveholders were doing. Carrie Lee found their voices, which was incredibly challenging, and found out something very different about them. So Carrie Lee, can you talk a little bit about how you gave voice to these people and what that those voices were saying? Sure, so actually Poor Whites had been written into the narrative earlier, mainly uh, right after the Civil War and into the turn of the century, culminating in W.E.B. Du Bois' Black Reconstruction in 35, 1935. So they, these kind of historians were talking about Poor Whites but then what happens in the 30s and on through uh, 
the beginning of civil rights is white historians, white, uh, white supremacist historians, write poor whites out of the narrative, essentially. They're trying to present the South as a solid, uh, solid South that all white people are bound together in support of slavery, in support of the Confederacy, and it ties into the narrative of the lost cause, right? We, we, if we think all whites were supporting this, then everyone is proud to be a, you know, have a Confederate soldier in their family, to have this Confederate ancestry. And growing up, you know, at times poor in my life in, in the Deep South, I saw a very different side of race and class. And so when I started looking for these people and, and kind of why they were fighting, in the Civil War, why they supported a system that they were not making money off of or making any kind of, uh, it didn't improve their lives. Slavery did not improve their lives. So I'm trying to figure out why they were you know, part of the Confederacy. But the problem is most of these people are illiterate. So they didn't leave any written records. And so in some ways, trying to get at them is very similar to how historians have to try to get at African Americans prior to you know the the turn of the century about 1900, and basically you just have to get really creative. You have to look at a whole lot of different sources, and I, I mean I looked at everything from newspapers to all sorts of county and local records to uh, court, uh, criminal convictions, jail records, penitentiary records. I looked at what the enslaved themselves were saying about poor whites, and also what the upper classes were saying about poor whites and even some travelers accounts. One place that I found a lot of really good records, not only on poor whites, but also on free blacks and slaves are coroner's reports. And this, you know, how people die really tells you a whole lot about how a society works. And in these coroner's reports where they're investigating a death, they're actually giving you snippets of what life was like that day. They, they paint the whole picture of what life was like. And so they tell the story of the way people from different races interact. Uh, it, was, it was just so fascinating. But thinking about this and, and how to get at people who are illiterate or people that were so busy working and so poor working that they, they, they didn't leave written records, I think we have to expand what we look at as historians. And African-American scholars have done this for a long time, but you know, looking at songs, looking at folklore, looking at art, getting at people and, and what they did historically and what they believed by kind of subverting the written word and, and trying to find other sources. But I think digitization is going to be a huge revolution in how we examine anybody in America who didn't leave written records, right? I mean, even the digitization that had happened by the time I was writing the dissertation and then the book, people writing 10 years before me would not have been able to, to even get at the same records I did, because I could go into a, a database of Georgia newspapers and type in poor whites and you know, get hundreds of results. So digitization is gonna change everything, I think, in the next few years, and especially for, for black history. Do you have the, the coroner's report thing just sort of struck me, do you have a, a particular story that comes to mind that you found out about oh, someone that this just was said at all? Well, it, it tells a lot about abuse. There's a whole lot of abuse going on. Uh, family abuse, uh, men abusing their wives, even killing their children at times. There's a lot of alcoholism. It just kind of shows you in a slave society, and these are all the states I look at are in the deep south, so you're, you're approaching 50% enslaved people in these populations. It has to be an incredibly violent, you know, always surveilled, always policed, 
constant, you know, constant threat of violence over all these people to keep the system going. And this kind of violence pervades every single level of the South, even people who aren't directly involved in slavery. And I found a lot of poor white men who were, you know, drunk and abusive. And I also found bound out children, bound out white children. So, so white children could be bound out just by nature of their parents' poverty in the antebellum period. And this lasts into the, well into the late 19th century, of course, once emancipation happens, the children being bound out are then black instead of white. But you, know, you can find records of these, these bound out children, some of them as young as five or six, literally being murdered by their masters after they're being beaten so many times. I mean, it's, it's not slavery, definitely it's not slavery. I don't compare it to slavery, but it is a type of unfreedom and it is a type of uh, allowing elite people in society to, to beat and brutalize anybody who's below them. Right. I mean, one thing um, that you say, I think it's in your introduction, that, you know, this is the one person, the one percent, mm -hmm. um, or maybe someone who reviewed the book said that, but, mm -hmm. but it struck me that we are really going back to, you know, we talk about the one percenters all the time now. Here we have the same one percent, and it's, it's just striking that, you know, that existed back then. And so let's use that to go forward. I know tonight you're talking at People's Forum mm -hmm. event, maybe you can tell us about that, but you know, what, what do we do th with this? What, what's the kind of work that you're doing now with sure. what you found out about poor working people um, and their rights or lack thereof? How do we translate this into today's climate? I think, it, I mean, the reason, part of the reason the book has done well has been because of the timing of the release, as you said. And with Trump's election, a lot of the blame got put on poor and working class whites, when that, in, in reality, that wasn't the case. And whites at every level, no matter if they were you know, highly educated or had a high school, high school education, they're still voting for Trump at the same levels, the same percentages. So it wasn't the fault of poor whites. And what I have uncovered in my own work and then kind of trying to teach people now is that Yes, poor and working class whites are racist. They're white supremacists. But the white supremacy always is benefiting the elite whites, the, especially the 1%, the people at the top. And it's being propagated by people at the top because they know that if they can keep poor whites and blacks and, and any other kind of ethnic group separated by white supremacy, then they're not going to have you know, an uprising of the masses. They're not going to have labor unions. They're not going to have any kind of force of the people come together and try to overthrow their power or, or take a share of the money. And so I'm, it's very relevant today, obviously, because we're still, you know, the next 20 or 30 years for progressives, for even for the Democratic Party, you've got to find a way to, to have some kind of multi-racial coalition. And until you can get working class whites and poor whites to see how policies that are aimed at, at at poor people benefit them. And so you can get them to see that, you know, not much progress is going to be made. Right. It's fascinating to me because, you know, I, Cambridge is a British company, you know, in England, it's class. It's always been about class. I mean, now race is more of a factor because of the times we live in. But, you know, I've always been struck by how in the U.S. race has been our class. And we, we forget, you know, a few people remember class, but it's been subsumed by race. And so I, I, I see this as such a fascinating 
study of the intersection between race and class, which we forget about. I mean, Carrie Lee in this book is, my read of it is that, you know, she's putting class back into one of the factors that precipitated the Civil War, mm -hmm. and we don't talk about that that much. And similarly, you know, on my bad days, I think we are in a civil war, on the verge of a civil war in this country. And absolutely, it's about class. Mm -hmm. So how do we get there? I mean, are you, I mean, you live in Atlanta. I mean, you mm -hmm. live in, you know, mm -hmm. you live in Stacey Abrams country, right. <laughs> you know. Are you seeing any glimmers of hope? You know, what are the glimmers of hope and what are the ongoing obstacles? We have about a year to get there. We have a year. And I think we, in the, in the Deep South, we've made huge inroads, actually. I mean, Stacey Abrams would have won if it hadn't been a stolen election, if it hadn't been voter suppression. Um, what we're Which seeing... Which happened in the Civil exactly, War. Exactly. It's coming, coming straight from this, this period. I actually just gave a lecture on Reconstruction and, and said, whether you were looking at Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia in this last election cycle, the playbook of how to suppress votes, voters and how to you know, just use outright fraud in some cases, straight from Reconstruction, straight from trying to divide poor whites and blacks and, and make poor whites think that their economic interests are aligned with upper class whites. And I think a big part of it is education. I think that our system of teaching history and civics and government in this country is fundamentally flawed and broken and no one's doing anything about it. Our textbooks are based on information that are, that's probably 50 to 60 years old. And it's, the textbooks are made with a narrative. They're made with a political purpose. And until we can figure out, I think as historians and intellectuals, how to subvert that process, if we can't change the process, we've got to subvert it and figure out how to get history and government and, and real knowledge to the masses, uh, we're not going to go anywhere. So I think things like you're doing now, this podcast, doing, doing things that are, that are not written, you know, doing film, doing video, that's going to reach younger people, I think, a lot. And, and they're, they're free. I mean, right. let's go back to class, you know, and I know, you know, there's been a lot on Twitter lately. I, 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 actually, another thread that was started by Carrie Lee, but you know, academic conferences, they cost a lot of money. Even if you were going to present at an academic conference, you need to pay a fee. And this does keep a certain group of people, I would say, sustaining a narrative. Often, it, you know, the, the, the younger people or people that might be very busy at a teaching institution or an adjunct and really seeing, you know, sometimes seeing the, the first generation students, mm -hmm. you know, don't necessarily have the economic means to get to the conference or to be asked to write a textbook. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I, when you think about the economics of producing and disseminating history, it's not a surprise necessarily that perhaps this narrative, you know, just sustains itself until right. we can get new voices talking and get them out there. So again, with d digital, again, right. right? We go back to the digital where it becomes accessible to everyone. Right. So I mean, technology, yeah. social media, it's, it's going, it is going to change because it gives a voice to people who haven't had one before necessarily. And you're absolutely right. The, the system of academe right now is almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. You've got a few, you know, elite schools that, that basically, run everything and generally to get to those elite schools 
you know, there are a few success stories of people that come from nothing, but generally if you're at an elite school, you've come from a pretty privileged background to get there in the first place. So that, not only is it classist, it's also fundamentally racist because of the racial wealth gap in this country. And so what you see are these big conferences that are almost all white, almost all male, almost all people from a financially middle class, upper middle class, upper class background. And so they don't look at class. They don't look at race. They don't look at, at history that most people want to want to be hearing. People want to hear about themselves. So, I mean, that's a big disconnect between kind of the high, um, you know, great white man history, as, as I would call it. Uh, people aren't buying that stuff so much anymore. They want to know about where they came from, what, what life was like for their ancestors. Right. And so then just taking this back to the 19th century, and then we should probably wind down unless there are more things you want to say, you know, I'm thinking about that, that regeneration, right, of, you know, in this case, academics who, you know, go on to college, go on to grad school because of economics, you know, um, in, in the book, Carrie Lee spells out very powerfully and very candidly how much you needed to basically purchase a slave. And so the poor white people who Carrie Lee is studying, you know, you could never cross that barrier because you're poor white. How do you get the money? You work. Well, in a region where most of the labor is slave, black slave labor, how are you going to break through there? So, you know, you have to struggle to get jobs. Your children are going to have to struggle to get them, you know, if they're not killed by right. you. And so on and on it goes. And, you know, I think just like you, you see just the patterns completely reproduce and it's it's breaking those patterns somehow I think you know that's the work that has to be done and thank goodness for intellectuals like yourself that are actually getting out there spending inordinate amounts of time mm -hmm. and resources to do this and just keep going <laughs> don't stop <laughs> well I mean it's it's interesting to see that the, the cycle of poverty is so hard to break and it always has been in this country and even if you look at the deep south today the biggest landholders still in the south the, the biggest landholders are descendants of slaveholders the land never changes hands in most cases and the few inroads that african americans had made in the south even as as landhold land holding farmers are have almost been erased now I think is it's because they've moved. No, or? it's because of white supremacy. It's because the people that are in charge of the land and the capital and the, the sugar mills and the cotton mills and all of it, you know, people that are in charge of all that stuff that are in charge of the capital can do whatever they want to the labor and, and force people to work at you know, below minimum wage in many cases and no workers rights. And it's it's a really dire situation. And I think one that the South and even the rest of the country, I now argue, is, is having to grapple with is you have this huge underclass and, and unlike most other developed nations, we don't have a system to deal with it. Right. So here's a question, you know, thinking about southern labor today, you know, I immediately think of migrant and seasonal workers. So mm -hmm. what does that then do to complicate the picture if you're talking about, you know, sort of white and black citizens? Mm -hmm who are struggling over resources and then the landowners or the factory owners are bringing in seasonal mm -hmm. labor. What, what does that do to create a, 
know, well, it complicates things. Yeah, it complicates things so much. But even when you think back to our, our second Reconstruction, our, our civil rights era, the Poor People's Campaign was formed to be a multiracial, right. multicultural right. you know, movement, and it still is. Now, now it's run by Do Dr. Barber, and. It still is. It's seeking to bring in working class whites, and it's actually really doing a good job in a lot of these deep south states. North Carolina, it's huge, but they're now bringing in to Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia. And you're seeing a sea change, and Stacey Abrams actually was really good about this, going out to these rural areas, these, these white, poor white areas, and talking to them and actually telling them how policies that she believes in, policies that have historically, you know, people think would only benefit blacks or African-Americans, she's showing them that they'll actually benefit whites too. I mean, we're, we're, we're in a real crisis in rural America, losing hospitals, you know, it's, we're in a crisis. White people are dying. Poor and working class white people are dying in this country at ages earlier than their forefathers. You know, we've never seen a trend like this. There's a huge problem with suicide, with opiate abuse, with drug abuse, and no one in America is really addressing these kind of you know, psychic problems. I mean, it's, it's a crisis of identity, I think, in some ways. Do you think, this may come out of left field, but do you think part of that is, you know, I mean, that you talk about the carceral state in your book, too, with past drug mm -hmm. epidemics that have largely been racialized, I would say, you know, um, that just threw black people, especially men, mm -hmm. in jail. The, the imprisonment situation doesn't apply the same way to white people as it does to black people. Do you right. think part of this is, you know, where, where's the law enforcement part in this too? Right, so I show in the antebellum period that poor whites were targeted mainly for behavioral crimes. You know, and these aren't crimes, these are, these are literally behaviors that they just criminalize. So whether it's vagrancy, which is the only crime where you can be arrested for literally doing nothing. You're standing on a street corner and you're arrested because you're not working. Or you know, during that time, drinking. Alcohol was the drug. So, so poor whites were arrested all the time for, for being drunk or even drinking with African Americans. And, but what happens right after emancipation is that the criminal justice system in the South completely shifts to targeting poor whites who could subvert the slave system and actually you know, were having interactions, personal interactions with the enslaved themselves. Well, the system shifts to now, you know, elite whites are courting poor whites to maintain white supremacy and then putting away black people um, just in, in droves, in droves. For being black. Um, for being basically. black. I mean, it, it, they're criminalizing nothing. They're criminalizing the fact that you don't sign a contract with your former plantation owner to work at wages you know, that you can't live on. And I like to make the point that as bad and brutal and horribly violent as slavery was, at least under slavery, the black body was capital. And so there was an incentive to at least keep people alive. And as soon as emancipation happens, that incentive is completely gone because the body is no longer capital. So you can abuse your laborers until death and literally just kill them with no, I mean, you're not even arrested, you're not even asked what happened. And, and we still don't know, you know accurate numbers of how many men and women died right. in chain gangs and, and through, the, through the justice system itself. Okay, on that happy note, I think we might wrap up, um, but let's 
Keep watching Carrie Lee. Um, your Twitter handle, please. It's Carrie Lee Merritt, but with one T because it was too long. <laughs> yes. So probably most people listening to this are already subscribed, but if you don't, um, follow her now. She is a key voice, and I think it's just going to get louder and louder in the best possible way. Thank you. Thank you.